Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in for today's episode of the Plant Peace podcast, where we are reading through my book, Plant Peace, and interviewing people sometimes and looking up new information and really just having a discussion about the way that we interact with non-human animals on the planet and how that affects them, how it affects us, how it affects our environment, our health, and a whole host of other things. Today's episode is actually going to be focused on us. It's going to be focused on humans. We have gone through in the previous episodes and chapters um, how it affects a lot of animals, not all animals, but a very large scope of um, species and the ways that humans interact with them and exploit them. And now we're going to be looking at how our actions towards others is also affecting us as well. We're going to be reading the human section of my book and also the environmental impact of um, carnism section as well. And if you aren't familiar with the term carnism, it was created um, by a psychologist. I believe her name is Melanie Joy. I could be wrong about this. Um, but she was kind of looking into the psychology of our diets and, you know, we have words like veganism and vegetarianism, but if you are someone who is eating meat, you're just considered someone who's eating normally and regularly. And there's no, like, word to describe that except for maybe meat eater, but that's not really, like um, – it doesn't really have a similar connotation to the the dietary difference that like veganism or vegetarianism would be. And so she termed the coin uh, carnism to describe that dietary pattern. Um, and by having a name and I, an identification for it, it's kind of easier to be like, oh, that's a thing. That's not like just the normal thing. Like that doesn't have to be the normal thing. That just is a dietary pattern. Um, and so some of the following chapters, because next week we're going to be looking into the health effects of carnism uh, and the benefits of veganism and looking into um, just kind of a lot with the health. It's going to be um, largely about that. And we're going to be talking about foods to consume for healthy vegan living, um, some stuff to just like beware for because some animal products are hidden under like really weird names that, I mean, I wouldn't know to look for unless I looked it up. And so I presume a lot of other people are probably in the same boat. Um, so yeah, so without further ado, we're gonna just get started with today. Um, wait, one little thing. I just had breakfast and it was really good. Um, it's one of the recipes in my book, but I definitely like, I believe, um, her name on, Facebook, I believe, is a jackfruit watermelon, um, and she is just a beautiful, wonderful lady um, who is going through this whole raw food journey, has been for over a year now, and I've just been really inspired by her. Um, and she put out just like a recipe for mango ice cream, and it was just like frozen bananas and frozen mangoes with like water blended up. And so I've like altered it a little bit. So I do the frozen bananas, the mangoes and um, some soy milk. And then I put in some flax seeds and then I blend that all up and it's so good. And I put chia seeds on top of it and it's just like, mm -mm -mm. it's cold outside. So it's not the ideal weather for this, but it's so freaking good. I highly recommend it. It's good for like either breakfast or dessert, like either or could go anyway, but it's very healthy because it's literally just like fruit. Um, 
and so good. So highly recommend that very, very much so. Um, so yeah, if you're looking for a treat, there's that. Alrighty. Diving into the humans. Industrial animal agriculture essentially requires human rights violations in order to be profitable. Whether their job is on a slaughterhouse or on a farm, the work is grueling, physically and mentally demanding, emotionally desensitizing, and dangerous. Those who have worked in these fields often speak about the terrors of death, disease, and misery they both witnessed and caused. I've heard it firsthand from a couple of men leaving their shift to head back to prison. They told us how they related to the animals. They were both put behind bars and treated unfairly. We were at first shocked that they were pulling people from prison to do this kind of work, as it's quite the opposite of rehabilitating or healing. Instead of looking into the reason why someone may have committed a certain crime and looking into how to help that person reach a state of mental, emotional, and physical security, they send them off to mop blood off the floors of a slaughterhouse. Unfortunately, this is fairly common in the United States. Quote, there are now twice as many Americans in prison as we have farmers. The book this quote was pulled from was published a decade ago, and since then the disparity has only increased. Daily, the number of small farming operations die off and more people are arrested, often for offenses that they either A, didn't do, or B, shouldn't be a crime anyways. Mandatory minimum sentences have people being locked up for at least two years for the possession of cannabis concentrates in Texas. Meanwhile, on the other side of a couple imaginary lines, its next-door neighbor Colorado is bankrolling millions in profits. Those incarcerated are then forced to do labor to benefit major corporations, which are increasingly slaughterhouses. Human death is common in this industry. In 2017, Frank Dwayne Ellington died while on a work release at Coach Farms in Ashland, Alabama. Elsewhere, a worker in Murrayville, Georgia, died in 2016 from electrocution. The following year, another person in Nixon, Texas, died from excessive chlorine inhalation. In Orange Grove, California, someone was crushed to death. The death toll continues on today, and hundreds who are injured but survive lose toes, fingers, arms, and hands. This is obviously dangerous work. Across the nation, poultry and meatpacking plants employ at least hundreds of prisoners. It is sometimes their only option for work release. An investigation by the Southern Poverty Law Center uncovered documents from Georgia and North Carolina showing that since 2015, at least two dozen prison employees have been significantly injured while on duty. Within the same investigation, a survey was conducted among poultry plant workers that revealed, quote, 72% of respondents suffered significant work-related injury or illness. 17% of the workers using sharp tools suffered a cut serious enough to require some medical attention. Among sanitation workers like Ellington, who have the most exposure to to chemicals, 30% of respondents said they experienced respiratory problems. The injury rate in the poultry industry is nearly twice the national average for all workplaces. Poultry workers also fall ill at six times the rate of the average American worker. A vast majority, if not all, of people do not want to work in the slaughterhouse. Line speeds have gone from hundreds of animals slaughtered an hour to thousands. Humans risk being cut by the very knives they use against animals, kicked in the face by those still alive, slipping on the blood-soaked floors, or hurt by an animal trying to defend themselves before being murdered. When working on the kill line, there's no time for breaks. 
A last week tonight episode on YouTube recently featured the abuses occurring to humans in this industry. On that episode, they showed a video of a worker urinating beneath the line since there was no time for a bathroom break. This apparently was not the first time this kind of thing occurred. Finding people to work in these places is difficult, as the work is less than appealing. As a result, they put slaughterhouses in the lowest income places they can find, which often have to be in primarily Black and Latino communities. They hire those who have literally no other opportunity for work in their area. In these places, often the good job is at the slaughterhouse or Walmart. I saw this with my own eyes in Stockton, California. It was one of the most shocking places I've ever been. Where we were, the streets were littered with human feces, trash, and thousands of people with no place to call home. Stray dogs wandered the streets, and the animals that humans had claimed as their own weren't in much better conditions. While bearing witness at the slaughterhouse, nine chickens were willingly surrendered to us by workers. They clearly did not want to be there, but they had no other choice. Working there was their only option in a place with one of the highest crime rates and lowest socioeconomic standings in this country. Statistically, a majority of slaughterhouse workers are people of color and or immigrants who are often undocumented. That was clearly displayed in Stockton. Working in a slaughterhouse comes with backlash, such as post-traumatic stress disorder, anger management issues, work-related injuries, high rates of suicide, drug abuse, and domestic violence. The job at hand is riddled with known and unknown hazards. Working on the slaughter line is considered one of the most dangerous positions. In a single shift, some workers on the poultry slaughter line make up to 20,000 cutting motions. This repetitive motion is mind-numbing and detrimental to their physical health. This makes them prone to injury and disease, which sometimes springs directly out of the bodies they disassemble. Quote, In early 2008, for example, an unknown neurological illness began affecting employees at a factory run by quality pork processors in Minnesota, which slaughters 1,900 pigs a day. The diseased worker suffered burning sensations and numbness, as well as weakness in the arms and legs. All the victims worked at or near the head table, using compressed air to dislodge pigs' brains from their skulls. Inhalation of microscopic pieces of pig brain is suspected to have caused the illness. After the CDC investigation, this practice was discontinued. Due to the un- end quote. Due to the unpleasantries guaranteed in this kind of work, it's often hard to find people willing to perform such a terrible, life-threatening job. Aside from situating themselves in low-income communities, one tactic they use to employ people who won't complain is by hiring and literally seeking out undocumented immigrants. That way, their workforce will have little knowledge about labor laws, minimum wage, and a constant fear of deportation waved over them if they are to speak up for themselves. Injuries often go unreported unless they render them incapable of working. If so, they will likely be fired and often given no workers' compensation. Both plant and animal farms also use these techniques to keep costs low. Even the slaughterhouses and farms who want to treat humans relatively better than the worst are having a difficult time doing so. The reason being is cost. If you're playing, if you're paying your employees a living wage, but your competitor is paying half that much, then the prices for your product are going to be much higher and likely sell less. You may be thinking, if the work is so terrible, then why not quit? Well, it's not that simple. Most people working in these places would much rather be working literally anywhere else, however their one job opportunity happens to be there. There are many of us who feel we could never kill an animal, especially hundreds to tens of thousands a day. 
but many who feel that way are still willing to pay for it. If you're not willing to do something because you feel in your heart it's wrong, then how can you justify paying someone else to do it? If the demand for these products stopped, then the factories would have no choice but to stop operating. More ethically aligned companies would hopefully fill the places, the closed CAFOs and slaughterhouses, and new work opportunities would be presented to communities who critically need them. Paralleling the harm of slaughterhouse and farm work, the impact these businesses have on the surrounding communities are virtually always depressing. Massive waste pits filled with urine, blood, and feces stink up the nearby towns and often leak into groundwater supplies, rivers, and lakes. This can have deadly effects. Nitrates in drinking water, caused largely by pollutants put in the groundwater indirectly or directly by animal farms, have been linked to birth defects, cancers, and thyroid dysfunction. Many farms spray this waste onto fields that are right next to communities, most of which are communities of color. This waste is toxic and makes stepping outside on one of the spray days an undesirable act. Even if you're not by a spray field, being near one of these farms is disgusting. In my town, we're a good 10 miles from the nearest CAFO, yet on a hot summer day when they let the air roll through these farms, the smell creeps into town. Sometimes it's so bad that breathing is difficult. This isn't an isolated incident in the slightest. In fact, quote, in a study of 226 North Carolina schools, children living within three miles of factory farms had significantly higher asthma rates and more asthma-related emergency room visits than children living more than three miles away, end quote. For those working in these conditions, their rates of experiencing asthma is 25%. CAFOs emit hydrogen sulfide, which has been linked to neuropsychiatric abnormalities. This may explain why those who live near CAFOs are also more likely to feel stressed, tired, anxious, depressed, and angry. It's not only the people working or living near these facilities that are in danger, but those consuming the flesh coming out of them as well. Quote, In November 1999, the USDA shut down a meatpacking plant for repeatedly failing salmonella tests. The Texas company operating the plant, Supreme Beef Processors, happened to be one of the leading suppliers for the National School Lunch Program. With strong backing from the meatpacking industry, Supreme Beef sued the USDA, eventually won the lawsuit, and succeeded in December 2001 in overturning the USDA's salmonella limits. The industry is deciding what's safe for you and our children to be consuming. About 1.4 million Americans are sickened by salmonella every year, and the CDC has linked the nasty, antibiotic-resistant strain of the bug to ground beef. Nevertheless, it is now perfectly legal to sell ground beef that is thoroughly contaminated with salmonella and sell it with the USDA's seal of approval, end quote. Um, that quote and a lot of other quotes for um, the upcoming section I got from the book. It's called CAFO. I'm going to grab it. The people on camera are going to be able to see it. The people listening are not, but I'm going to grab it. It is physically the biggest book I've ever read. Um, it's huge. There are a lot of pictures, so it's not all words. Um, it's a very comprehensive understanding of CAFOs because um, that's literally all the book is about. It's a series 
of essays and articles um, put together. It was published in 2010. So, you know, it's a bit a decade behind, but a lot of the information is very accurate. I don't particularly agree with the narrative um, that they conclude with, where the support is for smaller farms um, and still treating animals as property. Um, I disagree with that. Um, however, there is a lot of really very intriguing in, uh, research in this book, and I read the entirety of it for my book. Um, so, I mean, I, I pulled out some key points, but there's still a lot in there that is just appalling, just so shocking. I was continuously baffled while reading this book. Um, so if this is something that you would like to learn more about, CAFO, Concentrated Animal Feeding Operation, um, The Tragedy of Industrial Animal Factories, and you should find it. It's very large, probably very expensive, but it was gifted to me. I think it's like $50. Yeah, it's 50 bucks, but um, yeah, very good book. I, I recommend if you are interested in this sort of thing, which you might be because you're listening to this podcast. CAFOs are breeding grounds for death and disease. Superbugs, which are antibiotic-resistant drugs, are born out of these facilities. These animals are fed numerous amounts of antibiotics throughout their short, miserable lives as a growth hormone and to keep them from dying prematurely. Since, subtherape since subtherapeutic levels are being administered, the bacteria present are given the chance to adapt and survive in these environments. This strengthens them, making them resistant to antibiotics, meaning that if the bacteria were to spread to humans, it would have deadly consequences. Slavery at sea. On the sea, similar problems arise. In fact, it gets quite worse. If you've ever spent significant time on the sea, then you know how dangerous it can be. Due to this, tens of thousands of fishermen die every year. The International Labor Union actually reports that as many as 24,000 fishermen and people engaged in fish farming and processing are killed every year. It makes fishing one of the most dangerous occupations. Massive ships require a large labor force to operate. These companies have one goal, profit. An easy way to make the most amount of money is to pay your workforce little to no money. This has resulted in slavery at sea. The same groups responsible for illegal fishing are behind human and drug trafficking as well. In the documentary Seaspiracy, several people formerly enslaved were interviewed. Many of the people were held captive at sea for 6 to 10 years. They shared their experiences of being hit having boiled water thrown on them, and having an armed guard on board 24-7. They were forced to do difficult, physically demanding work, with the threat of death and injury looming over them constantly. Dead human bodies were kept in freezers, and some people were thrown overboard. These fishing vessels aren't only affecting those being forcibly brought onto them, but they've greatly affected the local communities as well. On the coast of Africa, the European Union has been clearing the sea of fish. Massive fishing vessels massive fishing vessels sweep through diverse ecosystems and destroy all they touch. For those who rely on fish for survival in that area, this has been detrimental for their food security and local economy. In the US, 35 billion taxpayer dollars are used to subsidize fisheries. According to the United Nations, this is the same dollar amount we would need to combat world hunger for a year.
world's hunger. Quote, by the turn of the 21st century, the world's 800 million hungry people were outnumbered by 1 billion people who were overweight. End quote. Around the world, there are people in nearly every nation that do not have access to clean water or food, while others have an abundance of both. Some of these people slowly starve to death on a street corner, and others in a village next to a dairy farm that used to be a jungle. The problem is not that we have a shortage of food. In many ways, we have a surplus. If you've ever seen the dumpster of a grocery store, you know what I'm talking about. The way in which we are distributing these essential resources is riddled with inequality. While this is a deeply layered issue that is very much in bed with capitalism, I will largely be speaking of how world hunger directly correlates with animal agriculture. Quote, in the United States, 157 million tons of cereal, legumes, and vegetable protein are fed to livestock to produce just 28 million tons of animal protein in the form of meat. In contrast, an acre of cereal crops can produce five times more protein than an acre used for meat production. Tragically, 80% of the world's hungry children live in countries with grain surpluses that are fed to animals for consumption by the affluent. End quote. In 2016, the United Nations report, Livestock's Long Shadow, states that, quote, in simple numeric terms, livestock actually detracts more from the total food supply than they provide. In fact, livestock consume 77 million tons of protein contained in feedstuff that could potentially be used for human nutrition, whereas 58 million tons of protein are contained in food products that livestock supply, end quote. The thousands of CAFOs serving no benefit to society at large could easily be converted into vegan, organic greenhouses. We could grow enough food to feed ourselves, sell to our neighbors, and offer to those in need. These facilities would require less land while still employing community members, all without the reliance on animal exploitation. Think about it. If we stop breeding and raising billions of animals for slaughter, feeding them more food than they produce, and giving them trillions of gallons of precious water, then we can completely transform our planet in one generation. We can co-create a world where lack is a thing of the past. Our planet creates all we need. All we must do in return is nurture and respect her and our fellow earthlings. This change starts with us. Our purchasing patterns and random acts of kindness. Invest in, buy from, companies that are in ethical alignment with your values, and when possible, grow your own food. Food sovereignty is one of the most empowering things we can do. Nearly all of us can grow microgreens in a jar, start a little backyard garden, or an indoor hydroponic system. There is injustice across the board of our industrialized society, so taking back some of the power we've given away can be life-changing. The more we rely on others for our basic survival needs, the more we become dependent on those resources. What would we do if they disappeared? Money mongering. What's perhaps the most frustrating about all of this is that the government subsidies, also known as taxpayer dollars, are likely the only reason why most factory farms are profitable. Quote, between 1997 and 2005, factory farms saved an estimated $3.9 billion per year because they were able to purchase corn and soybeans at prices below what it cost to grow them, end quote. The financial booster, this financial booster has allowed them to save 5 to 15% on production cost. Alternatively, smaller farming operations often receive no subsidies. This has led to more and more small farmers converting to factory farming operations just to stay profitable. 
A major funding source for CAFO owners is the Environmental Quality Incentive Program, EQIP. The original intention of this program was to assist small farmers in safely handling waste to better preserve the environment of agricultural land. It has now been distorted into a money pool for CAFO infrastructure for up to $450,000 per investor over a five-year period. From 2008 to 2012, over $7.3 billion in EQIP funding was approved, with a huge portion being specifically allocated for factory farms. Quote, the Union of Concerned Scientists has reported that CAVOs received an estimated $100 million per year in EQIP funding in 2002 to 2006, with the amount rising to $125 million in 2007, end quote. Hundreds of millions of dollars have been stolen from the public and given to actual environmental terrorist factory farmers. The industry then charges those who act and rise against them as just that, environmental terrorist. The solution to this problem is quite simple. All the money needed and more is already here. We just need to redirect it. If we took the billions of dollars being given to CAFOs and redirected it to repurposing them as veganic greenhouses, then we could transform the course of our species dramatically. Mass amounts of toxic waste would no longer be produced as we stop forcibly impregnating and systematically raising trillions of animals to be slaughtered. Community is once surrounded by disgusting waste lagoons and concentration camps filled with suffering animals would now be blessed with local organic year-round produce. Those working could learn new, life-affirming skills that would be much less dangerous and harmful than their previous job. It's likely that new jobs would be created. The structure is already there. All we need to do is make the change. Energetic Warfare We live in a vibrational universe. Every cell in our body and every other body on this and likely every planet is vibrating at a certain frequency. Our vibrational state can be affected by many factors. Our emotions, the food we eat, the music and movies we watch, what we say and think, and our general environment. In regards to our emotions, it's important to understand that in addition to vibrating at a certain frequency, they're also charged with a particular voltage. This voltage causes them to expand or contract based on their state of being. Emotions such as joy, love, and excitement vibrate at a higher frequency compared to emotions like fear, anger, and despair. When two vibrational beings come into contact and their energies begin to mingle, resonance often occurs. This means that their vibrations begin to match one another. So why am I talking about this? Well, put simply, when one being suffers, they produce some of the lowest vibrations possible. Put thousands of individuals together in some of the worst living conditions imaginable, and you can create a massive density of misery that impacts not just those in it, but the surrounding community as well. Everyone who enters these facilities for work takes that energy home with them, which could be part of the reason why high rates of domestic violence and drug abuse are common among slaughterhouse workers. I feel that by having tens of thousands of concentrated suffering camps scattered across the world, there is a sort of energetic warfare in effect that is detrimental to literally everyone on this planet. This added with the actual houses of slaughter that exist in nearly every nation, probably all, produces a frequency that lowers the collective energy field of the planet, preventing us from reaching our full potential and living in a state of harmony with one another. Consciousness, by nature, is expansive. 
We are ever learning, growing, and evolving. This is true of humankind and our fellow Earthlings, and likely for beings across the multiverse. Right now, there is mass suppression of consciousness by the use of media, the foods we consume, the products we buy, and the trauma we inflict upon others and ourselves. We don't have to live like this. I don't think that life is supposed to be like this. Imagine if every person, both human and non-human, on this planet regularly vibrated at the frequency of joy. How different would this world seem? What could we create together? What would our lives look like? I dare you to dream, to imagine a peaceful world for all. I dare you to spend time pondering creative solutions to issues you see and then take the risk of implementing them in your life wherever possible. Try, learn, grow, fail, try again. We don't always get it right the first time, but that's how we learn. I personally have learned a lot from the immense failures of humanity, and I hope that we can all take the knowledge we've gained and not repeat the same mistakes again. Environmental Benefits of Veganism and Deficits of Carnism The benefits of veganism and deficits of carnism are deeply interwoven. One major point people often make when it comes to switching to a plant-based diet is cost. There is a major, there is a common misperception that cutting out meat, dairy, and egg products for their alternatives is inherently costly. While this can be true if expensive products are consistently chosen, it can also be false if whole foods are focused on within the diet. Aside from the literal monetary cost for the consumer at checkout, there are a list of other costs that come with our foods that are externalized, which allows companies like McDonald's to have a dollar menu. Quote, retail prices of industrial meat, dairy, and egg products emit immense impacts on human health, the environment, and other public assets. These costs, known as externalities, include water emissions with the potential to heat up the atmosphere, foul fisheries, polluting drinking water, spreading disease, contaminated soils, and damaging recreational areas. Citizens ultimately foot the bill with billions of dollars in taxpayer subsidies, medical expenses, insurance premiums, declining property values, and mounting cleanup costs. End quote. Animal agriculture is responsible for 20 to 33% of the world's fresh water consumption, occupies 45% of arable land, is responsible for up to 91% of the Brazilian rainforest destruction, is the leading cause of ocean dead zones, water pollution, habitat destruction, and species extinction. According to a report from the United Nations in 2006, quote, Cattle rearing generates more global warming greenhouses, as measured in CO2 equivalent, than transportation. And smarter production methods, including improved animal diets to reduce enteric fermentation and subsequent methane emissions, are urgently needed. End quote. Methane gas is a powerful greenhouse gas that is produced as a byproduct from raising cows. It is considered to be about 80 times more destructive than carbon dioxide exhaust from vehicles over a 20-year time span in its ability to rapidly warm the planet. With that in mind, know that cows are producing about 150 billion gallons of methane. With that in mind, know that cows are producing around 150 billion gallons of methane every single day. In the United States, our mass amounts of liquid manure lagoons has boosted us up to the number one spot in methane emissions for the aforementioned ship pools. In case you're curious about how methane is created, I'd like to enlighten you with the description. Quote, 
Ruminants, such as cattle, buffalo, sheep, and goats, process their feed through microbial or enteric fermentation in their rumen. This fermentation produces methane that is released by the animals, mainly through their noses and, to a lesser degree, their tailpipes. While this process is what allows ruminants to discuss fiber out of grasses that we humans cannot, it adds to livestock's extraordinary climate change toll, end quote. In addition to methane, cows also produce 130 times more waste than the entire human population without any proper waste treatment programs. This waste often gets into our water streams and acts as a devastating pollutant. To make matters worse, animal agricultural... To make matters worse, animal agriculture also produces 65% of the world's human-related nitrous oxide, a gas with a global warming potential 296 times greater than our CO2 per pound. Than CO2 per pound. Quote, according to the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, the world's livestock contributes to 18% of all annual greenhouse gas emissions. But a recent report from the World Watch Institute estimates that livestock could be responsible for as much as 50% of all climate changing emissions, making it the most critical influential factor in global warming, end quote. In addition to all their pollutants released by animal confinement, about 72 to 75 percent of the ammonia emissions reported in the U.S. are due to livestock. Confinement only worsens this toxification, as dairy cows kept in CAFOs have been shown to emit five to times more ammonia than their counterparts who have the luxury of living directly on the planet. While this and other gases released by these industries have been found to pose a real threat to this planet and those of us living here, the Environmental Protection Agency only requires companies to report how much they emit. Not that they do anything about it. In fact, they have no limit on how much of these harmful gases they're able to create. One year, a CAFO imprisoning 1,500 cows in Minnesota was so reckless that residents living near them had to be evacuated due to extremely high hydrogen sulfide levels. Hydrogen sulfide at these extreme levels can cause coughing, vomiting, diarrhea, nausea, headaches, and shortness of breath. In areas surrounded by these disgusting factory farms, there is seemingly no escape. It is unfortunately quite easy for CAFOs to harm the environment with little to no backlash whatsoever. This is partially because the industry is largely self-regulated with essentially no oversight. Quote, in 2008, the EPA provided an even weaker bill that allows large-scale CAFOs to self-certify that they do not intend to discharge pollutants. The public receives no notice of these self-certifications, and there is no required inspection of the CAFO by a regulatory agency. Moreover, a CAFO can have waste spills from many separate sources on a CAFO and recertify each time that its problem has been has been addressed. End quote. Let's like think about that for a second. They can just say, "Don't worry, I got it. It's covered. I'm not polluting anything." And then they do, and then they get caught, and they're like, oh, I fixed it. But don't check. Like, what? Are you kidding me? This is, like, one of the least regulated industries. Like, it is just crazy what they can get away with. And they are doing, like, the maximal amount of damage. Just insane, really. <sighs> Toxic shit. 
Estimates from the U.S. Department of Agriculture state that around 500 million tons of waste are produced by factory farming every year. This figure is three times higher than the waste generated by this nation's human population, and there is virtually no proper waste treatment occurring. This means that a majority of it is sprayed onto fields, held in massive manure pits, and often leaked into groundwater, rivers, streams, lakes, ponds, and the ocean. Animal agriculture is the leading cause of ocean dead zones for this reason. Combined with their excessive use of fertilizers and other harmful chemicals on the crops fed to animals. According to a report conducted by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, waste from pig, chicken, and cow production has polluted 35,000 miles of rivers in 22 states while also having significantly contaminated groundwater in at least 17 states. I was very much a part of that. Environmentally, the enormous quantities of pigs raised in relatively small areas is devastating to the local ecology. The main problem arises in their shit. Pigs produce three times more fecal matter than humans do, all without a proper waste management system. Pig cavos house a minimum of 1,000 animals, with the largest in Iowa confining 24,000. And these metal sheds, they all shit onto the floor of their cell, which then falls through the slats, gathers up, and is generally pumped into either a septic tank underground or a lagoon, many of which are open pit. Heavy metals, ammonia, cyanide, hydrogen sulfide, phosphates, and nitrates are all found in these lagoons of toxic sludge. Quote, the lagoons, them- the lagoons themselves are so vicious and venomous that it's often impossible to save people who fall into them. A few years ago, a truck driver in Oklahoma was transferring pig shit into a Smithfield lagoon when he and his truck went over the side. It took almost three weeks to recover his body. In 1992, when a worker making repairs in a lagoon in Minnesota began to choke to death on the fumes, a worker dived in after him, and they died the same death. On another occasion, a worker who was repairing a lagoon in Michigan was overcome by the fumes and fell in. His 15-year-old nephew dived in to save him, but was overcome. The worker's older brother dived in to save them, but was overcome. Then the worker's father dived in. They all died in pig shit. End quote. One of the most common ways cavos dispose of their waste is by spraying them onto fields. In areas near these massive spray fields, the people living there literally can't go outside comfortably if they're spraying. Some people have stepped outside and been so overwhelmed by the putrid stench that they collapse. Within the house, attempts to keep the odors out are helpless. Keeping all doors and windows shut keeps the worst of the odor out, but there are times where the food they consume is laced with the taste of pig shit. These companies are not only heartlessly tormenting the animals they enslave, but they are also destroying the communities they have invaded. Quote, Smithfield Foods, the largest and most profitable pork producer in the world, killed 27 million hogs in 2007. In 2007. That's a number worth considering. A slaughter weight hog is 50% heavier than a human. The logistical challenge of processing that many pigs each year is roughly equivalent to butchering and boxing the entire human population of New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, Philadelphia, Phoenix, San Antonio, San Diego, Dallas, San Jose, Detroit, Indianapolis, Jacksonville, San Francisco, Columbus, Austin, Memphis, Baltimore, Fort Worth, Charlotte, El Paso, Milwaukee, Seattle, Boston, Denver, Louisville, Washington, D.C., Nashville, Las Vegas, Portland, Oklahoma City, and Tucson, end quote. Smithfield isn't the only company producing this kind of destruction. 
Smithfield isn't the only company causing this type of destruction. They're just one of them. A competitor of theirs caused the greatest environmental spill in U.S. history in 1995. A 120,000-square-foot lagoon ruptured and released 25.8 million gallons of toxic waste into the headwaters of the New River in North Carolina. The toxic goo was so harmful that people reported being burned to the touch. It took about two months to make its way to the ocean, and by the time it did, over a million fish died. In addition to being susceptible to ruptures, open-air lagoons are vulnerable to being overwhelmed by light rain, and where hurricanes occur, all hell breaks loose. As you can see, what we feed or inject into animals eventually makes its way into some form of water somewhere. With access to clean water depleting globally, it's, it's more important now than ever to closely monitor what we allow into our waterways. Humans are not the only ones affected by these pollutants. We just happen to be the main species causing them. Fish are perhaps the most plentiful victim of water toxification. One way this contamination occurs is through steroids. Cows are sometimes given steroids via ear implants, which slowly release the anabolic steroid trebolone. 10% of these steroids pass right through the cow, according to a German study. It's then released through their waste, which often ends up in nearby waterways. This can negatively affect the wildlife living there. For example, male fathead minnows who live downstream from a farm utilizing these drugs displayed low testosterone levels in small heads. The water they were living in contained four times more steroids than the water upstream from the farm. Now, let's look at a nasty microbe. I'm definitely going to say this wrong. Pephisteria piscida is a, multi, is a multi-form microbe responsible for violently killing hundreds of millions of fish and harming at least dozens of humans. It can arise from algae blooms following the havoc of a shit spill. Hordes of fish appear to eat the algae, and this allows a deadly form of pestiferia to arise. This microbe eats the blood cells, tissues, and skin of fish, making it so that they seemingly dissolve. It can also scavenge human blood cells, attacking the bodies of fishermen. Intense memory loss, not being able to find their way home. Headaches, blurry vision, and respiratory problems can occur. Some of those studying it in laboratories got exposed forgot their names, and had trouble completing basic tasks. Recovery can take years. Water crisis. A staggering 322 billion gallons of water is used every day in the United States alone. 80 to 90% of this water is directly funneled into our agricultural practices, with feed crops for animal ag consuming 56% of total water usage. In the world, we have reached the tipping point of a global water crisis. In the midst of this epidemic, which has already led to regional conflicts, disputes, disease, and worsened living conditions, we are still actively and ignorantly contributing to the leading cause of water consumption and pollution. In order to produce a third-pound hamburger, at least 660 gallons of water must be used. This means that eating one hamburger is the equivalent of the average American showering for two entire months. Our dietary choices have the most significant impact on our personal water use. I've already spoken in depth about how animal agriculture impacts our world oceans, but because of how important this particular issue is, I would like to emphasize it one last time. Presently, our oceans are dying. If our oceans die, we are likely to die. It's that simple. A majority of the air we breathe doesn't come from the rainforests, although they are important, but actually the ocean. If we continue stealing all reachable life from our oceans, then we will likely eliminate ourselves in the process.
The world's fish population is collapsing. According to the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, roughly three quarters of all fisheries are either fully exploited, overexploited, or depleted. The world fish population has depleted drastically over the past several decades, with humans being 100% responsible. Compared to the 56 billion farm animals killed every year, roughly 2.7 trillion sea creatures are caught and killed annually. Approximately a third of these caught are then ground up and put in feed for farmed pigs, cows, and even fish. Recent estimates state that we will have no reachable fish in our oceans by 2048. If current production rates continue, then that date may come much sooner than anticipated. In addition to simply not eating fish, one way we can help stop this from happening is by demanding that our lawmakers petition to stop government subsidization of the fishing industries. Quote, in an exhaustive survey of 152 countries, scientists at the University of British Columbia found that ocean-faring nations spent $22 billion on harmful subsidies in 2018, or 63% of the total amount expended to support the global fishing industry. End quote. Without our support, this industry, without our support, this industry will collapse. We just need to work together. Land abuse and soil erosion. Globally, livestock production is the largest user of land on the planet, and in my educated opinion, it is a waste of perfectly good earth. In the U.S., 260 million acres of public land largely managed by the Bureau of Land Management and the U.S. Forest Service is leased to farmers for grazing cows. Often, wild animals fall victim to this arrangement, especially predators who are seen as a threat. Quote, 33% of the planet's arable land is dedicated to growing feed crops, which are energy-intensive to raise. End quote. Half of all fertilizer in the U.S. and Canada is used on these feed crops. In the U.K., that percentage spikes to nearly 70%. This fertilizer can be detrimental to the health of the soil microbiome, in turn affecting the health and viability of the plants growing from it. Healthy soil is essential for healthy crops. Plants grown in nutrient-deficient soil will echo the well-being of their environment and themselves as well. The fruits and veggies we eat nowadays have less nutrients in them than they did 50 to 100 years ago because of our unsustainable farming practices. This is actively affecting everyone reading this, even if up until now you were oblivious to it. Healthy plants need healthy topsoil. Unfortunately, the world's topsoil is eroding away at unprecedented rates. Quote, According to the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization, the world is losing an equivalent of 10 to 15 million acres of farmland through erosion each year. Every year, the United States loses nearly 2 billion tons of soil, making farmlands less fertile and setting off a cascade of destructive consequences. End quote. Strong soil is generally created by a healthy, diverse ecosystem that allows for plants to root deep into the ground and natural systems to operate as intended. The common form of agriculture nowadays, monoculture, is harmful for soil health. Using large, machi Using large machines to break up the soil in a process known as tilling can actually be quite destructive, especially when this process is repeatedly year repeated yearly. This is now becoming common knowledge among those in the farming community, so more and more farmers are joining the no-till movement. However, tilling the soil is only part of the problem. Large hooved animals overgrazing in a focused area weakens the soil and allows for the wind to blow it away, often landing in streams and other waterways. 
Rotational grazing systems can reduce this drastically, but since that practice certainly isn't common, our topsoil is withering away. Concentrated methods of raising animals coupled with massive monocrop fields relying heavily on pesticides creates a disastrous situation. This irresponsible system of feeding and raising animals classified as livestock is responsible for 85% of soil erosion in the U.S. Approximately 95% of the world's food is reliant on healthy topsoil. It is essential for our survival. Within the last 150 years, about half of the most productive soil has disappeared, and cropland soil in the U.S. is eroding 10 times faster than we can replenish it. It's estimated by experts in the United Nations that within the next 60 years, we will run out of topsoil if we continue on this pace. I highly recommend watching the documentary Kiss the Ground to learn more. Deforestation Deforestation is another significant cause of soil erosion. The destruction of old-growth forest is perhaps the worst because of how extensive their root systems are and how much life they nurture. There are many reasons for deforestation. Sometimes it's for lumber or paper products. Most often, however, it's to clear land for agricultural purposes. Globally, we are losing our rainforest at a rate of an acre per second. Gone. An acre of rainforest was just demolished. The driving force behind rainforest destruction is animal agriculture. Entire forests are being cut down to graze animals and grow genetically modified soybeans and other crops to ground and to feed for the animals being exploited. Over 80% of the rainforest in Brazil was destroyed for cattle ranching when you take into account soybean production for the cows being used. Animal feed constitutes 80% of the world's soybeans. This percentage is only growing by the second. It's estimated that every day over 100 plant, animal, and insect and insect species are lost due to rainforest destruction. At this rate, it's likely that all tropical rainforest will be cleared within the next 40 years. This onslaught isn't happening without a fight. It's just unfortunate that one side is comfortable with murder. After the forest code passed in Brazil, many people that spoke out in protection of the rainforest were killed. For example, Dorothy Stang, a nun who lived in Para, Brazil, was murdered for speaking out against the industry. According to the World Animal Foundation, quote, already 56 million acres of land are used to feed farmed animals, with only 4 million acres producing plants for human consumption. It takes 20 times less land to feed someone on a plant-based diet than it does to feed meat eaters, end quote. If everyone in the world who could did adopt a plant-based diet, then we could simply convert part of the land presently used for animal agriculture. We could sustain our population while rehabilitating and reforesting the land we no longer need to use. This also means we wouldn't have to cut down any more of the rainforest and the land. All the land we need, we already have available. It's just being used terribly. Hope for a healthy planet. Now, all of this is quite daunting. I would like to emphasize that it's not too late to redirect our momentum. There is hope. Presently, about 40% of usable land is occupied by and for animal agriculture. I recently began working with an organization called United in Heart with the goal to transition a majority of the world to a vegan lifestyle and to reclaim the land previously used for animal agriculture for the planet. Their goal is to take 41% of the land previously used for animal ag and simply reforest it. Quoting from their website, a 2019 publication in Science indicates that if we add 1 trillion trees to the earth, we will cut the atmospheric carbon pool by 25% and return to the safe zone with respect for global warming. 
by simply stopping the mass murder of every other species on this planet, no longer pillaging our seas and polluting them with fishing nets. Relying on plant-based foods grown locally and planting a ton of trees, we could completely change the planetary path in this generation. We can do it, and it doesn't even have to be that hard, but it does start with us. When choosing to not eat animals, you automatically retract your support of the animal agriculture industry and begin purchasing products that are much less destructive, maybe even helpful. A study conducted with the University of Oxford even found that cutting meat and dairy products from one's diet led to a 73% reduced carbon footprint. The same researchers found that if the switch was made globally, then our collective use of farmland could reduce by 75%. To put this into perspective, that is the total mass of the United States, China, Australia, and the European Union combined. That's massive. We could revive lost habitats and species, clean our air and waterways, and save ourselves by simply eating a plant-based diet and reforesting our world. And that is where we're ending today. There is hope. We just gotta be aware of what we're doing wrong so that we can fix it. And that was a lot of knowledge. So I hope that you take some time, digest it. Um... I said a lot of things. If you have the book, it might be helpful to like read through um, and like really just take it in, you know, share this information with anyone who you think would find it useful. Um, I mentioned a lot of sources here. I highly recommend checking them out. Um, There's a couple environmental related documentaries that you can find. Um, There's a mini one on United and Hearts website. Um, there's also Cowspiracy and Seaspiracy, which I recommend checking out. Um, just, you know, educate yourself, be aware, and take action where you are able to. Um, so all we can really do is just, if each of us do our best, then that will hopefully be good enough. All right, well, I have a couple weeks of traveling coming up, so I have some things I gotta do. Um, but it's been super, super lovely talking to you guys. Um, and next week I will, I I will not be doing a podcast for the next two weeks, but afterwards I'll be coming back. We're going to be talking about the health effects of veganism. I'm going to see if I can get an interview, um, for either that week or the previous week with a friend. We will see. We will see. All right. Well, I love you. Bye.